0: This is the Skyline SIB podcast. If you would like to connect with us, head on over to our website at skylinesib.com and follow us on social media at Skyline SIB on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so much for that uh, introduction, Jasmine. How good is it to see Jasmine back on stage, yeah? Yeah. Wow, come on, give a big hand, encouragement, encourage the team up here as well, and uh, back there, come on guys, give them a hand. Thank you, we honor you. Thank you for bringing us into the presence of God, That's such a sweet presence here in this place. You know, I'm excited about the message that God has laid on my heart. Uh, today, we're not in any particular series, but uh, we're in a life message today, and i uh, just praying that God will breathe life into your own spirits, into your own situation as you hear God's Word today. How many of you want to leave, uh, receive a fresh breath of life from the Lord today? Amen. I want that for myself. And so uh, today, I want to start by telling you a story of this man named Stanislav Petrov. Not many people probably have heard of him. Um, uh, this is a picture of him uh, now, he's, he's obviously a lot older, but his story begins in September of 1983, and uh, so he was a lieutenant in the Soviet Union air defense, right, and uh, one day he was doing an overnight shift when his computer flashed a warning that missiles, five missiles from the United States were streaking across the sky towards his country. And so, he could immediately notify his superiors. In fact, it was protocol to do so. But something within him just caused him to pause that day and just wonder, if the U.S. indeed launched missiles towards us, why would they just launch five missiles? And that led him to countercheck the instruments. And lo and behold, it was a male function. They had an early warning detection system, but it was still kind of new, uh, newly minted, and uh, well, that's a very, very um, uh, you know dangerous thing. But he paused that day and decided otherwise and found that there was a malfunction. And this man, even though you had not heard about him, probably single-handedly saved the world from a possible World War III, and all-out nuclear war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Somebody say, wow. Now, I, I don't think and I hope, uh, you know, none of you will ever need to face the stress and the pressure of such world-changing decisions for your life. Can somebody say amen? Yeah, but uh, at the same time, you know, we have major decisions that we, we make, In our lives, right? From things like, who do I marry? Who do I date? If you're a student, you know, what courses do I take? What degree should I go for? What place should I study? What place uh, 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 should I buy perhaps? What home should I um, buy? You know, what job should I take? And as believers, we can agonize sometimes not just over the decision itself, but wonder as well, rightly so, where God fits into all these things. When we make a decision, are we doing the God thing, as it were, or is it just a good thing? Is this the right decision? Is this part of God's plan for my life? How do I know that God is leading me and where can I get His guidance? Today's message I've entitled Receiving God's Guidance, and we're going to look at a passage of Scripture found in Psalms chapter 25, and it's a wonderful passage. It's written by David. And it has themes of, you know, crying for deliverance, crying for guidance. They are gold nuggets, as it were, in here for us to mine together. And uh, so we're going to start off reading the first few verses until verse 5 together uh, in a loud, strong voice. Are you guys with me? Are you guys with me? Yes? Yes? All right. So let's read this together. It says this, one, two, three. O Lord, I give my life to you. I trust in you, my God. Do not let me be discouraged or let my enemies rejoice in my defeat. No one who trusts in you will ever be disgraced. But disgrace comes to those who try to deceive others. Loudly now, show me the right path, O Lord, and point out the road for me to follow, Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. All day long I put my hope in you. This is the first five verses of this psalm that we're going to go through. And uh, you know what? We're going to make pit stops at uh, important sections. But there are a few things that we need to know before we dive that will help us uh, really to understand what is happening in this psalm. Firstly, we need to ask this question, when was this psalm written? Because it will form the context, it will form the setting for us. It was probably written in the latter days of David's life, in the period where he had already become king. In verses 22, it says, uh, you know, redeem Israel, Israel, O oh God, out of of his troubles. In other words, whatever he was facing, the predicament, the challenge, the conflict, whatever he was asking God for guidance and help for, it would affect the direction and the destiny of Israel as well, which makes sense if he were the king. But secondly, also we find in verse 7 and verse 11 that he begins to ask for forgiveness of sins. When you put this together in in what we know of David's life, you know, instances where he had to come before God because of a crisis due to a failure on his part due to sin. We think about things like his, his adultery, for instance, with uh, Bathsheba, his uh, you know how he conspired to have the husband killed. Um, uh, how uh, you know in his own family there was a, a crisis, there was rape, there was incest, there was murder, which he seemingly did nothing about, and 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 that led to the conspiracy and rebellion of his son Absalom. Right? These are all crises that stem out of his own uh, uh, sin in his life, his failures and mistakes in his life. We might think about, for instance, you know, how David made an ill-advised census of the entire nation of Israel. He had to repent before the Lord because of that. And so when you put these things together, all these major incidents happened while David was king. And uh, so the third thing about it, why it points to probably being in the latter part of his life, is that this psalm had an acrostic structure. What that basically means is this is a, a po- poem and there is a, a, a poetic technique, right? Every line, in Hebrew at least, um, uh, is, the first letter of every line is significant. Together, you take them together, it forms something. Sometimes it forms a word. In this case... There are 22 verses in this psalm, and every single line starts with an alphabet in the Hebrew language. You put them all together, it's a a, a picture of completeness. Now, what's the point here? This is probably not something written in David's shepherd days, okay? This is a a, a well-thought, well-written, poetic psalm that probably came in the latter part of David's life. Now, all these things, just tuck it away. It's it's really important. It will set something for us even as we begin to go through this psalm. But what's the second thing that we need to know? What was the state of David's heart? What emotions was he possibly going through at the time in the, in the kind of challenges that he was referring to in this psalm? We find that he is in deep anguish. There is a sense of loneliness, he says. There is a sense of fear, even guilt for what he has done. Shame and uncertainty. All these things form an emotional turmoil within David as he begins to go through his challenges. But here's the thing. Within all his surrounding troubles, within all the mess-ups and the failures and the mistakes and the sin that he's dealing with, the emotional turmoil that he has, we find that there is a strong ultimate declaration of trust in God even as he begins to ask, plead, petition God for help, guidance, and deliverance. This is the thrust, the themes surrounding this psalm. And I believe within here are lessons, principles for us with regards to how we might begin to receive and live by God's guidance and His leading. Would you like to know about that together with me? Yes. So there are three things uh, that has been distilled. Number one, it is the promise of God's guidance. Everyone say promise. Secondly, it's the posture of receiving God's guidance. Everyone say posture. Posture. And thirdly, it's the picture of God's guidance. Everyone say picture. Picture. And so let's start off with the promise of God's guidance. And to kick off this point, uh, you know, I want to tell you about a story that I heard uh, once upon a time about a little boy named Johnny. And together with his sister, they visited their grandparents who stayed in the countryside. And they gifted Johnny with a slingshot. Now, some of you may not know what a slingshot looks like. It basically looks like this. You put it in a stone and then, you know, you can can, uh, uh, release it. And it's basically like a a projectile weapon, right? And so, he's really excited. He took this uh, uh, along with him uh, to the woods and began to practice. But he found that it's more difficult than it looks, He tried and tried and tried and tried. He couldn't actually hit the practice target, even though he'd tried many times. And so in frustration, he decided to call it a day, and he went back to his grandparents' place. Uh, When he reached there, he saw a duck, uh, his grandmother's duck, actually, in the backyard. And maybe it was, you know, all the pent-up frustration or what it was, but he took aim and he let fly. That slingshot, the stone, and it zipped across. It hit the duck, and it fell dead. Uh Uh-oh. And so he was horrified. He was like, what in the world do I do? He took the duck, tried to hide it under a pile of uh, firewood. But after he did that, he looked up and he saw none other than his sister, Sally. Sally saw the entire thing. But she just smiled and said nothing at all, went into the house, right? And then it was time for lunch. And so at lunch... Grandma says, you know, Sally, um, I I need your help later to wash the dishes. Don't forget, okay? And Sally says, Johnny told me he wanted to help in the kitchen today. Right, Johnny? And she goes and whispers in his ear, remember the duck so Johnny was like, yes, I did. I will do the dishes. And in the afternoon, you know, the grandpa comes along and says, you know what, guys, let's go fishing. Let me take you fishing. And, and grandma says, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, Sally has to help me uh, prepare dinner, but you can take uh, Johnny along with you. And Sally just smiled and said, oh, that's all been taken care of. Johnny wants to do it, don't you, Johnny? And she whispers again, remember. So this happened for a few days. Johnny was uh, doing his chores as well as Sally's chores when he couldn't tahan any longer. Any longer, what he just confess that out? I killed the duck, he told his grandmother. And the grandmother just looked at him and said, I know gave him a hug and said, I saw the whole thing. I was standing here right by the kitchen window and I saw what happened. I saw that Sally was there as well. And you know what? Because I love you, I already forgave you before you asked. But I wanted to see how long you would let Sally make a slave out of you. Isn't there an important lesson for every single one of us in this story? You know, sometimes when we do something we're not proud of, sometimes we know that we have sinned against God. Sometimes we've made mistakes and things, even in our past or in the present. You know what? Our first instinct sometimes is really just to hide. You know, our first instinct sometimes is to think, Oh, you know what? Uh, I'm not holy enough to come to God today. You know, maybe, maybe tomorrow. But here's the thing, God has already made a way for us to come, no matter what it is. None of us are, are perfect, don't you see? God has already opened the way to come to Him at any time, it doesn't matter. Here, this is the first thing we need to understand about the promise of God's guidance. It's not just for the righteous. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is only Jesus that makes us righteous. And therefore, God's promise is despite our past failures. Can somebody say amen? And this is what we see in David's life. He's got failures. He's got sin. He's got mistakes. Any other person, if we had sin of that magnitude, what would we do? David shows us that we can still come to God no matter what it is. He comes on the basis of God's kindness and compassion and His mercy. Look what he says. Look what he says. He says, remember, O Lord, your compassion and your unfailing love. Amazing love, which covers me. We just sang that. For which you have shown from long ages past. Do not remember the rebelliousness of my youth. Remember me in the light of your unfailing love because you are merciful, oh God. He knew God's unfailing love for him and so he came. In repentance, yes, he came to ask for forgiveness, yes, but he came. He began to ask God for help, for counsel and deliverance. You know what? This is the revelation that he begins to show each and every one of us. I love the next verse. It says this, The Lord is good and does what is right. He shows the proper path, the way to go to those who go astray. God's giving us the same invitation today. Because you know what, this is a message of incredible hope for each and every one of us who's ever made a mistake or a bad decision in our lives. And that probably covers this entire room. It definitely covers me as well. You know what, you may be here today. You may have things in your past that you are ashamed of, things that you're not proud of, things that you wish you could take back, things that cause you huge regret because what you did not just only affected you, but affected other people around you, affected your life loved ones, maybe your family, but I'm here to tell you today, there is home. There is hope, and God invites us to come back into His presence. You can have guidance. You may be feeling lost right now, but He says, when you come, I will show you the way back. Today, you may be in a dry and weary place, but I want to tell you that that absence you feel of God's presence, that longing that you feel of Him is evidence that His presence is working in your life. Come on. He's speaking to you today. And he says, come. He says, come. My promise is not just for those of people who have had it all together. My promise is for those who have lost their way, who made mistakes, who have regret. He says, come. It is despite our past failures and it is despite and, and it is according to his plan and purpose. Do you know that you were designed by God? You are unique. He has a plan and purpose for your life. You know, the world might not think so. I, I, I recently found out about this American psychologist called Daniel Dennett. I don't know whether you've, you've heard of him. But he wrote a book called Darwin's Dangerous Idea. Uh, basically, uh, you know, his, his own take on uh, Darwin's uh, theory of evolution, natural selection, and all that kind of thing. And, um, you, you know, one of the things that he says, I'm paraphrasing here, is basically that natural selection, this whole idea that, uh, you know, everything's uh, random, things, things just, you know, <laughs> survival of the fittest, that kind of thing, is mindless, mechanical, and an algorithmic process. Basically, it's, it's just going to happen. You know, there, there, there's an algorithm behind everything. You know, that's just going to carry things to its natural conclusion. And basically, all that's saying is that nothing really matters. Nothing really matters. Nobody has designed anything, really. That's that's what he's saying. It 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 just just happens, and and everything can be boiled down to just algorithms working out things to its natural conclusion. And that, that's a little bit of a funny thought to me because uh, the people who, who, who know me know that I, I'm a software developer and I can tell you uh, algorithms are written by somebody. They don't just appear out of thin air. Okay. And so, um, uh, it's, but 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 think about this for a moment. If everything were just a mindless mechanical process. That means the very world that we live in, everything you find beautiful, everything that that has splendor, everything that you experience, every person or everything that you consider precious, at the end of the day, doesn't matter. The person that you're sitting to, next to, right now, even at home, doesn't matter. It's just a random collection of molecules and atoms and like, why are you spending so much time? that's a very, very bleak and depressing picture for me, at least. I don't know about you, but um, I prefer what the Bible tells us, that, 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 that there is a plan, that God as our creator has designed us and formed us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and, and He saw us in our mother's womb. You know what um, it, it says in Psalms uh, 25, verses 12, it says, who are those who fear the Lord? That's, that's you and I, believers, followers of Christ. He will show them the path they should choose and they will live in prosperity and their children will inherit the land. How many of you want to receive that as a word for your life today? I'm receiving that. See, Ephesians 2 verses 10. Paul takes this idea further that we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. You are a work of art. Work of art. Can you turn around to somebody next to you and tell them you are God's work of art? Mean it, you know. You are God's work of art. You are created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's intense. He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, if you didn't know this already, I want to tell you today there is a destiny for your life. There is a uniqueness to which God created you that's as unique as the fingerprints on your hand. That He's designed for you to walk in them, and that as we begin to draw near to Him, when we begin to listen, there is a promise that He will show you the path before you. If you believe that, say aloud, amen. amen. There's a promise of God's guidance. And secondly, there's a posture of receiving God's guidance because if there is a promise, then how do we begin to position ourselves to receive this guidance that God says He will give? Um, well, the first posture that we learn from the Psalms is a posture of humility. Everyone say Humility. Verse 8 says, he leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. It reminds me of a story in 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 19, and it's a story of a man named Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the army of King Aram, and so basically that means that he was a high-ranking military officer, a general, if you will, with many people under his command. All right. So that's the first thing. The second thing, however, is that he had this disease, a sickness called leprosy. And it's a skin disease. I didn't want to gross you guys out by putting a picture in case you didn't know what it was. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we don't want to traumatize you on a Sunday. Um, uh, but, But basically, it's a skin disease that, you know, they had literally uh, nothing they could do about in those days. But if not left untreated, it's progressive. It can cause permanent damage to your skin, you know, your nerves, your limbs, even your eyes, okay? And uh, so the story goes that uh, a girl in his house, or a slave girl, in fact, from Israel says, you know, if only my master would go and see Elisha the prophet, a prophet of Israel, he would be healed. And so, so he told this to his king. The king arranged for him to actually go to Israel to see Elisha. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. He goes to the house of Elijah, and when he comes there, it isn't Elisha that actually greets him. But rather, Elisha sends his servant or his messenger to come to receive Naaman and tell him this message. It says, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you shall be clean. Naaman did not take this very well. Actually, that's a bit of an understatement. He was furious. He marajuk like crazy. He left there in a huff. And you know what? He was, he was complaining. He was like, how is it that, you know, Elijah didn't even come to see me in person? Uh, you know, he sends his messenger. What is the big deal about this River Jordan? I mean, why should I go and wash in this dirty Israel river, isn't there, uh, you know, better rivers in Damascus? And he began to complain. It literally says, you know, he was expecting that Elisha not only would come and receive and greet him, but he would wave his hands, uh, you know, like, like some sorcerer or magician, abracadabra, sharakazam, and poof, uh, you know, um, his leprosy would disappear. That was what he was waiting for. That was what he was expecting. Go read it for yourself. It's so interesting. But he had, fortunately, A wise servant. He had a wise servant who said to him, If the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? And so Naaman did as the prophet Elijah asked, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. He received this miracle because he obeyed. Maybe reluctantly, but he obeyed. See, Naaman was wanting, expecting special treatment, maybe because of his status, maybe because of the fact that, you know, he's a mighty warrior, he's a general, big time. Uh, You know, he expects a red carpet pulled out for him. His ego was bruised in the treatment that he thought was beneath him. See, that's the first thing about Naaman's response. The second thing was his expectation of how he wanted God to work. Maybe it was partly due to his station, maybe it was partly his own idea of how a great God should work, but he expected the spectacular. He expected fanfare, you know, in this grand miracle to happen. You see, in the same way, we need a posture of humility. And what are the two big things that sometimes get in the way of that? Number one is a sense of pride. We hold on to things that we feel that we deserve perhaps or or insist on. We don't want to come out of our comfort zone maybe. And the second thing is that sometimes we box God In our own expectations. We feel that God has to do this miracle for us in this way. He needs to speak and direct us in this time. You know, (laughs) the audacity sometimes in the way that we come before God. It's just like Naaman. But David shows us that we need to come in a posture of humility. Trust Him even when it's not convenient, even even when sometimes, you know what, it doesn't make sense, even when sometimes it takes you out of your comfort zone, even sometimes when it might be humiliating for you. We need to have a posture of humility. Can someone say amen? amen? So that's the first thing about the posture. The second posture we see that David begins to have is a posture of faith. And we see that right from the start of this psalm. It says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. There's a trust there and there's a faith that is born out of a relationship with God. How do I know this? You see, that word, my, denotes something of the relationship between David and God. When we say my, even nowadays, uh, uh, you know, uh, for instance, if I said my common. You would probably assume and rightly so, I'm talking about my wife, uh, you know, rather than any other common that you know. And so there's a differentiator there. When we put a, a my, it's, it's indicative of the kind of relationship, the closeness perhaps of a relationship we have, whether it's a brother or a sister or a sibling or, or, a, or a spouse, right? Even our friends. For instance, sometimes we're talking, Carmen and I, and, and, and we're referring to some friends and it's like, is it, is it my Alex or your Alex you're talking about? Because we know a lot of Alexes. And so it's, no, 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 no it's, it's my Alex. You see, there's a differentiator there based on a relationship with that person, based on the journey, the experiences we have with them, when David says, oh my God, my God, it's personal, it's intimate. You read the Psalms that are attributed to David, it's almost as if you have a, a sense of intimacy based on the revelation that he has of who God is. And that's what we find here in this passage. And I believe that is why he was called a man after God's own heart. He was by no means perfect. I think we can all agree on that part. We're reading about a man who basically was an adulterer, a murderer, probably not a very good father, you might say, and yet he desired God above all else. He was a man after God's own heart. That is astounding. And when we look at the way that he presents himself to God, he says, remember, O Lord, your compassion, your unfailing love, which you have shown from long ages past. Do not remember the rebelliousness of my youth. Remember me in the light of your unfailing love. Don't remember me in the light of my own merit, my own accomplishments, my own serving, uh, you know, based on my youth, my own, uh, you know, authority and position and power as king. Remember me? No, not in the light of all that, but in the light of your unfailing love because you are merciful. And that's how each and every one of us may need to come We need to come to God in a posture of faith, not based on what we have done, our own merits, imperfect as it is. We come in our failings, but we come because Jesus has opened the way for us. There's a freedom to begin to come boldly into God's presence, believing that He will show the way. He will show the way through any wilderness that you are experiencing. And today, brothers and sisters, I pray that you will have a fresh revelation of this faithful God for your life, that his promises for you are indeed yes and amen. And even though you may be walking through the valley or shadow of death, you will not fear. He is with you. He will guide you. He will lead you. Fix your eyes on God today because he is faithful if you believe that and receive that for your life say aloud amen. amen come on it's faith in who he is he is our constant and he is our provider he will guide and lead us true and it says whoever puts their trust in him will not be put to shame you will not be disgraced he will fulfill that He set out to do, the good work that He started in you for His name's sake. So there's a promise of God's guidance, and there's a, a posture where we position ourselves to receive God's guidance. And finally, there's a picture of God's guidance. What does it look like for God to begin to lead us like this, into His plans, into His purpose, into God's destiny for each and every one of our lives. There are two uh, here. The first picture is a picture of waiting. Uh, It says, For you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all day. How many of you love waiting? No hands, I'm pretty sure, mine included. I'm going to put it down. You see, we, we don't really, that's not every, anybody's favorite topic. We want things now, sooner rather than later, if possible, because we live in a world of convenience. In fact, oftentimes when we come to God for guidance and direction, it's because we have something urgent. We need an answer, God, can you tell me now? And yet, David says, the essential to a a guided life, as it were, a life that is led by by God Himself. Our designer is waiting. He repeats this three times in 22 verses. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. If we want to receive God's guidance, we need to learn how to be in the waiting room, as it were. And in that place, guys, it's not just 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 passively waiting, sitting down, and it's like, okay, God, uh, unless you say something, I'm not going to do anything. No, it's an active, sort of attentive listening, a priority to what God says. Let me give you a picture of of what this means to me. Okay, this helps me understand this this word. Um, you know, we we have a, a, a baby in the house, just six months old, coming to six months old, and um, especially, uh, you know, she, she's. Our first, our daughter Grace. And so when she came, our life sort of um, reoriented and, and reordered and centered around all her needs, if you know what I'm saying. I don't know whether there are many parents in the house, but if you are there, uh, I know you're there. Just encourage us. Yes, there are a few. Okay, yeah. So here's the thing. This is how life is kind of since the day she was born. We have our things. Obviously, life goes on, right? Right? And uh, she's got her own needs and things like that. But, you know, obviously the communication is is not quite there. There's a lot of uh, crying perhaps, you know, to communicate and things like that. And so when she sleeps, that's golden hour. For us, when she sleeps, it's like do everything that you need to do because you don't know whether you have half an hour, one hour, three hours supposedly, or four hours. You know, it can change at any time. So you begin to do whatever you need to do. Prepare for when she wakes up or, or you know, go about your work or anything like that. You learn to be flexible and really productive, I must say, when a baby comes along. It's, it's good for your health. Have a baby. Um, <laughs> uh, but here's the thing. As parents, you know also that even as you do whatever it is you need to do, you're kind of on call and on standby the entire time. It's, it's like even as you do whatever it is you need to do, your ears and your eyes are on a lookout. Because the moment you hear that cry, oops, everything else goes on Pause because you don't know what it might be that she needs or she's trying to say to you, whether it's poop or food or whatever else it is, you go and see what it is she wants to say or what it is she needs. You know, I believe that is a picture of what it means to wait. Not a passive waiting. You don't just sit around and wait for something to happen. But even as you go about, whatever it is you need to do, there is an attentiveness in your spiritual eyes and ears for what God might want to say and what God might want you to lead into. And the moment He speaks, everything else pauses. And you come to God and you say, Speak, God, for your servant is listening. He calls us to wait on the Lord. That's the first picture. The second picture is a picture of being led by His Word and Spirit. And this is an astounding uh, 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 verse, verse 14. It says, The secret of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. Everyone's going to say, wow. You know, this, this is an incredible statement here. The secret of the Lord. How many of you want to know the secrets on God's heart? Yeah. I, I want to know that. I want him to reveal, you know, what is on his heart for, for me, for my life, for, for whatever it is. Since the secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. That's you and I. And so it's, it's like this. Do you know the difference between a travel agent and a tour guide? Um, a travel agent, for those of you who have never used a travel agent before, basically a good travel agent will handle everything for you in terms of what what you need in a trip right? Uh, uh, You you say you need to go to destination A. Okay, fine. You know, they'll get all the best deals, the flights, you know, are you okay with transit or direct? What kind of timing? You know, the value once you're there, the place, the accommodation, maybe some places that you might want to visit. You know, we can book ahead. We can register for you. All these kinds of things, they will help you do. That's a travel agent. And all you need to do is really go on your trip. Everything is handled. But that's where it stops, you see, the travel agent doesn't go with you on a trip. I mean, you probably wouldn't want to pay the extra fee anyway. Um, but they've they prepared everything. It's it's easy. You just go. But they're not there for the journey itself. No, that's the guide. That's the tour guide. And a good tour guide, you know, sometimes they will meet you even at the airport. Have you seen some of, some of these guys, you know, with, with with the sign boards and you feel like a VIP, you know, just coming out and it's like, oh, Mr. So-and-so, you know, it's like seeing a friendly face in a foreign land, you know, it makes all the difference. And then after that, you know, it's, uh, yeah, your car is this way, you know, take you to the hotel and you'll get you settled in, you know, I've, I've got the whole thing, the itinerary plan, I see you want to go here, here. And they begin to tell you some of the things uh, like, oh, you want to go this place? Oh, don't, uh, let me bring you somewhere better, you know, this is a tourist trap. And, and they steer you away from some of these places. They reveal even sometimes secret places you know, that you would not have discovered on your own. That's what a tour guide does. It reminds me of a time when when we went to Mulu Caves. uh, And uh, and we had a good tour guide. You know, he was bringing us around the caves and uh, he was telling us stuff, uh, you know, beyond what you can find on Google, basically. Um, uh, And he was telling us about the formations. He was telling about his favorites. And he was pointing out things to us um, that we didn't know about. You know, stuff like, you know, underground river that was running through. And, you know, he would say, uh, point out, look, 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 This, this, this is the deer cave entrance, you know. Can you see Abraham Lincoln? I was like, huh? Abraham Lincoln? What are you talking about? Can you see Abraham Lincoln? Can you see it, guys? How many of you see it? If you don't see it, uh, you know, not your neighbor and like ask, do you, do you see it? Some of the younger ones probably don't know, like, who's this Abraham Lincoln? Uh, you know, it's one of the presidents of the United States, like, bro. Uh, this is a picture of him. If you wanted to know who is Abraham Lincoln, there's this classic signature nose right there. Let me show you again. Do you see it? Yeah. It's like, yeah, oh, really? Wow. So good, right? And sometimes he even shields us, you know, from stuff that uh, probably we didn't want to know when. He led us through, for instance, like a pitch black uh, dark cave. It's like, wow, it stinks, man. It ranks. Uh, And after we finished, went through that. No man I just followed a guy right? After then he told us, oh, uh, you know the place you went through? Uh, Yeah, that, you know, huge amount of bad dung uh, poop uh, in there. Not only that, uh, you probably, uh, you know, passed by a million dead cockroaches inside there. It was like, wow. I did not want to know that. So disgusting. Um, you know, good thing you didn't tell us before we went in. It's gone already. It's over. You see, that's what a guide does. He's there. And he begins to show you. He begins to shield you. And I believe that is a picture of what it means to have God as our guide. To have his presence with us revealing to us by His Spirit, showing us the way step by step, sometimes even shielding us. We don't understand. We don't know why we're walking through. But behind, once we begin to see, we see God's hand. He reveals, oh, that's why I had to go through that. And I believe this is why Moses would tell God, see, God uh, said, the promised land is before you, It's a land flowing with milk and honey and abundance and blessing and I will drive out all the enemies. I will do all these things for you but I will not go with you. And Moses said, nah, no way. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. Just to be cheeky, you might say that Moses didn't want to settle for the travel agent. He wanted the full guided God experience. How many of you want a guided tour of your own life by the one and only God and creator of the universe, the one who created heaven and earth and designed our life every moment, every second from the day we were born? He knew us. And so how does this, how does this work? How does he begin to lead us? First Corinthians chapter 2, it says this, This will happen in the life of the believer. It says, but it was to us, to us that God revealed these things. What did He reveal by His Spirit? His plan. Of salvation, how He sent Jesus to come onto this earth and die for our sins so that the way would be open to come into God's presence boldly for whatever that we need, whether it's guidance or deliverance or help. He revealed this by His Spirit. And for the Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. And we have received God's Spirit so we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given us, opened the way for us. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, the good works that He has prepared for us, the good things that He started in our lives, we can begin to walk in that by the leading of His Spirit, by the Word of God. Because that's where it starts, guys. It's His Word. It's the baseline. Before we begin to even uh, uh, hear the planned will of God, He has a revealed will right there in the Scripture for each and every one of us. And as we begin to saturate ourselves with His presence, with His Word. He will lead us. He will prompt us. Sometimes, you know, we will have a sensing for for a certain direction. For some of us, you know, He may give us dreams. He may give us visions. For some of us, He may even speak in an audible voice. Sometimes He brings people around us, men and women of God, to begin to speak into our life. But He confirms that, aligns that with His Word. And that is a picture of walking not just moment by moment asking for direction from one time to another on separate occasions but a life that is led surrendered walking in delight hearing seeing experiencing the goodness of God in our lives how many of you want that for your life If you were encouraged by the message, share this podcast with a friend or family member and check out our previous episodes. Thanks for tuning in.